Welcome to Deep Breath In, the podcast from the BMJ, sponsored by Medical Protection, where we tackle the everyday challenges of being a GP. With COP26 over, everyone seems to have moved on to other things, yet the climate emergency hasn't gone away. But what are we doing about it in general practice? And how might we bring environmental impact into our clinical decision making? Today we speak to Richard Smith, Chair of the UK Health Alliance on Climate Change, to ask if COP26 was a success. Then we get some practical tips from Artie Bansell, GP and co-founder of Greener Practice. I'm Tom Nolan. I'm a GP in London and a clinical editor for the BMJ. And joining me as usual, we have Navjoy and Jenny. Hi, Jenny. How are you? Hi, Tom. I'm fine. I'm Jenny Rasanathan. I'm a family medicine doctor and clinical editor for the BMJ. And Navjoit, hi. Hi. Hi, everyone. Hi, Tom. Um, My name's Navjoit Lada. I am a clinical editor at the BMJ and a locum GP in London. Cool. So um, we're, yeah, talking about the environment and COP26 today, particularly with regard to our work, you know, and and the environmental impact of being a GP, really, and the consultations and the clinical decisions we're making. Um, But we're going to start maybe a bit broader than that with talking about COP26 and the kind of big kind of macro level, I suppose. Um, have you been following or were you following COP26 much? Um, again, I, I, I think I was initially very interested and then perhaps my interest sort of died down as it went on. But um, what about, yeah, Jenny, I guess, I think you'll be you'll followed it more and, and maybe got the take home messages better. So <laughs> I love that you have this really like <laughs> gleaming impression of us both. That's, that's really wonderful. I don't know, it's quite warranted. I mean, I followed it like you to an extent and I guess as it progressed and particularly towards its conclusion it became more about you know what is this policy that uh, you know will will be signed off and so that I did follow but I must say that I mean there was a lot of news and a lot of kind of fanfare and it was quite hard to keep up with Mm. with it all um and all the, the different kind of tracks that were going on yeah, you get a bit sort of numb to it after a bit. I suppose that's the thing about news these days, isn't it? But uh, yeah, Jenny? Well, I was just going to say, you know, similarly, I think there were so many reports coming out in advance of the summit itself. And and for me, those were the kind of big hitting take-home messages that, you know, regardless of what actions we take right now, we are on a trajectory for a warmer planet in the next, you know, 10 to 30 years, regardless of what we do now. And it's only if we take action now that we can hope to stem that tide later. And I think that, I mean, that's really challenging to hear. And, and I, you know, it's disappointing when you have reports with that kind of critical warning in them and, global leaders are struggling to come to any kind of agreement and and commitment to significant changes that that are so crucial it's it's really difficult to square that kind of warning and what we should all be very concerned about with reluctance on action yeah so so to to start us off i thought it'd be useful to talk to someone who was actually at the cop 26 and they're in a sort of healthcare capacity so uh, we got in touch with with Richard Smith. He's going to introduce himself in a moment, but um, people may know him as the f- former editor in chief of the BMJ. 
Uh, did you ever work with him, Navjoy? Is he before your time as well? Yeah, well before my time. So yeah. he was, I think he was editor until 2005. Right. And I had only just graduated medical school in 2005. Oh, sorry, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was a sort of very veiled insult, wasn't it? It's like... <laughs> <laughs> it like, I'm younger than you think, Tom, yes. <laughs> anyway, moving on. Uh, so yeah, shall, shall we have a listen to, to Richard Smith talking about COP26 and then we move into something, I guess, more broad about healthcare and, and how we can even start to approach this question of reducing our carbon footprint in, in healthcare. And that's coming up after this from our sponsor. When you're a GP, you're not just nine to five. Being a GP is part of who you are, whatever the time of day. So when it comes to your indemnity, you need someone you can turn to at any time. Medical protection is always here for you with expert medico legal advice, including 24 seven in an emergency. We don't just cover patient claims, we're also here to provide support and legal representation when it comes to GMC inquiries, coroner inquests, criminal investigations and more. Online, we offer risk prevention courses and webinars to keep you up to date with current news, risks and legislation. We also go the extra mile when it comes to your well-being. With a free counselling service and e-care app, we're helping members take positive steps to better mental and physical health. It's the protection your career deserves, all in one place. And if you're about to qualify or have recently qualified, we can help you take the next step in your career with savings on membership for newly qualified GPs. To find out more, visit medicalprotection.org. And now let's return to the interview with Richard Smith about COP26. So I'm, I'm Richard Smith and I'm the chair of the UK Health Alliance on Climate Change, which I would hope every single one of your listeners had heard of, but probably haven't. It's an alliance of most of the Royal Colleges, the physicians, the surgeons, the nurses, the BMA, the BMJ um, and the Lancet. And we're campaigning on climate change, you know, encouraging mitigation, but also promoting the benefits that f would flow from decarbonizing mm. our economy and, and our health system and encouraging adaptation because climate change is already here. Yeah. And, and you just got back from COP26. Yes, yes. An extraordinary experience. <laughs> yeah. Tell us a bit. I'm, I'm fascinated to hear about just the experience of kind of going through into this massive venue and and what it's like in, in there what what, what is it like? yes I, I mean I had never been to a cop before but I've got friends who've been to 14 cops so Nick Watts for example who's now the NHS chief sustainability officer has been to 14 and actually the first one he went to there were only kind of two health people there whereas this time there were a lot of health people I mean there were some six, seven, eight thousand people within the blue zone, which is the sort of mm. central zone. And at times I had the impression that most people were either walking around wondering why they were here and what they were doing, or they were eating, or they were sitting at their computer. It was, uh, it was very bewildering. Um, and there are masses and masses of events going on. 
um, most of which actually were also online. So in many ways, you could be there without mm. being physically there. It was, uh, it was bewildering. Right. Gosh, it sounds a, a bit like when I last went to the RCGP conference. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but on, on steroids. Sort of, you know, yeah. on a mega scale. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> wondering what you're doing there. Um, okay, yeah, I mean, maybe if we can go into health a bit more. Um, I read on your blog that it was only, the word was only used once in the declaration, but, but in, what, in what way was it getting more yeah, that, airtime, though? Yeah, I mean, that, that was an ultimate disappointment in a way, but... Th- there, there was a vision. A lot of people beforehand wanted this to be a health cop, that health would become really prominent. Mm. So instead of talking about sort of transport and agriculture and trade and all the things that get talked about at COP, there would be a lot on health because we think health is a way to really bring climate change alive for people because there are huge threats to health from climate change, but there are also potentially big benefits. If we were to decarbonise our society, it would be a much healthier society. Mm. So we think it's a, it's a way to engage people in a way that they're not so engaged by transport or agriculture. So we would like it to be more prominent. And slowly but surely, that message is getting through. So there have been sort of some discussions at previous COPs, but this was the first COP where, A, there was a great big pavilion one of those 80 pavilions I was talking about, Mm. uh, which belonged to WHO. So it was a health pavilion. And there were constant sessions there with people talking about all aspects of health and climate change. Mm. And uh, significantly there they announced that some 50 countries have committed themselves to getting their health systems to net zero or at least more resilient than they are Mm. now. So at the moment, really the only health system in the world that has you know, a plan, resources, funding, people to get to net zero is NHS England. It's not even the other three NHSs. Mm. But now there are 50 that are going to set up down this path, uh, including Scotland, um, Wales and Northern Ireland. So that was a significant announcement. So I, I guess moving maybe away from COP a bit towards just what in what do you how do you even look at healthcare and and you know getting towards net net zero and it's such an overwhelming thing isn't it and and i guess moving towards the consultation or maybe the smaller kind of your your field of practice how do you begin to to think about the, these issues because it just seems overwhelming to me yes i mean i think in a way, the, the first thing you need to do is to, is to sort of get some measure of your carbon footprint. You know, where is it that mm. all the, the carbon emissions are coming from? So, I mean, the NHS actually did that quite a long time ago. I mean, I think, I think something that's important to point out about NHS England is that it has had something called the Sustainable Development Unit for nearly 10 years so, you know, people have been thinking a lot about this. I mean, a good friend of mine, David Pension, worked on this. So th- th- there's a real sort of solid base to build on. So you measure the carbon footprint. And when you do that for the NHS, one thing you discover is that something like two-thirds of the um, footprint comes from suppliers. So drugs, equipment, you know, food, all the stuff that has to be assembled to, to mm. run a health system. And then when you look at the suppliers, I mean, this point was made 
by suppliers at the meeting at the COP, about two thirds of their footprint comes from suppliers, which sort of illustrates how we all have to get to net zero if we're going to get to net zero. In, in terms of the feeding this into either at the broader level guidelines or maybe at the consultation, you know, shared decision making, you know, what's the kind of ethical dimension to this? If you've got two treatments, but maybe one is slightly more effective than the other, but has a, a greater um, harm to the environment, where how do we start to um, measure these things against one another? Is yeah, it- I mean, that. well, NICE actually is beginning to do that. I mean, okay. as you know, NICE, you know, once, once say, a new drug is licensed, we'll think, well, should this be available on the NHS? Is it um, cost-effective? Will it produce real benefit and is it value for money? Well, now they need to do the same for carbon and they are beginning to do that. And I think a, quite an interesting example is desflurane, which is an, an anaesthetic that's been very widely used and has a terrible carbon footprint, you know, far worse than carbon dioxide, multiple times worse. And, I, and lots, of G, uh, lots of anaesthetists have just stopped using it. They discover they don't really need it at all. I mean, one anaesthetist said to me, well, it's really a, a gas for lazy anaesthetists uh, because it sort of I don't know, comes on and off quicker or something. But I think that's an example that if, if NICE had assessed that, they would have said, well, this just doesn't produce enough benefit for the amount of carbon that's available. And I mean, I know that changing inhalers, which lots of GPs will be involved in this, can be quite tricky because people get very, very attached to their inhalers and they're reluctant to change to different inhalers. I I know that that Terry Kemple, who's uh, a GP who's on the... UK Health Alliance, he and colleagues, maybe including Arty, have have produced a sort of rough and ready guide of the carbon footprint of different kinds of drugs, which they, I mean, how much that's being used, I'm not sure. You, sh- you should probably ask Arty about that. Mm. So, you know, that would be one of the things that you would have mm. as a GP, and maybe it could be included in the BNF eventually, so that you would be thinking about you know, the carbon footprint as you were prescribing. So, I mean, that's that's where we're headed. And I don't think it'll necessarily take that long to get there. And we're a step along the way already. Mm. So it's nice to hear that NHS England is, is sort of leading the way on, on this. Yeah, I think it is encouraging and... Um, interesting to hear that David Pension's unit has been going for 10, 10 years or maybe even more than that by now. But I mean, now at a time when there is all, you know, you would have thought that would have gathered a bit more momentum and there'd be more of that now. Mm. Yeah, you would have thought that more healthcare systems yeah. would have been thinking about this and preparing for this and kind of thinking about ways that they can themselves drive down their kind of carbon footprint but in some ways only only 50 health systems kind of joining that is seems a little Mm. bit low yeah and it is one of those things that you do worry like many many initiatives that kind of come across our you know across our 
I was going to across our desk or whatever um that you know once you feel like you're doing a bit you will kind of that's it you've ticked that box and you can kind of go on to doing the other things and I do worry that you know there is that very superficial kind of engagement with green green issues and, and maybe that's a bit unfair because I guess we're all on uh, you know as I, I was saying before it's it's this kind of journey isn't it and you try build and build towards um being more green being more sustainable um and perhaps companies are on that journey or healthcare organizations are on that journey as well but I guess when you also hear as Richard was saying that a lot of that impact comes not on an individual level but those higher system systems levels there is that expectation that that people will be doing more yeah but I I picked up on the same point as you Navjoy and to hear about in some ways, the kind of leadership of NICE, but the broader potential role here for health technology Mm. assessment agencies, I found really interesting. Um, Because, you know, Tom, your question to Richard was so great. You know, what do we do when there are potential trade-offs between different interventions for the same treatment? And um, we actually recently published an analysis article on this topic asking how much health can a ton of carbon buy? And um, the authors consider that the carbon emissions from conventional laparoscopy are 30% less than from the robot-assisted approach. Um, and, and, and yet how do you sit there with a patient and say, well, you could go with the robot assisted approach, which may have these and these easier kind of experience elements as you recover, or you could lower your carbon emissions by 30% and go with the traditional approach. And, and I think those kinds of granular individual decisions are really hard to make, but if you have, an organization like NICE saying, no, we're also going to look at value for carbon and we are not going to offer that that robot-assisted approach. It makes the whole conversation much easier and the priorities much more aligned across the system. Yeah, definitely in a consultation, (laughs) if you can say that NICE don't approve this technology or medication, then that's very different, isn't it, (laughs) to... Uh, I don't want to prescribe this to you because I think it's got too much of an environmental impact or whatever else. Yeah. And yeah. NICE already have those kind of processes in place to weigh up those different factors. You know, they do it with clinical effectiveness and cost already. So, you know, I, I think they have the expertise to be able to add in another yeah. consideration to evaluate. Yeah. But again, looking outside of the UK, where perhaps there aren't these organisations like NICE, you know, across much of the world, I think, you know, particularly more private healthcare systems. Is there any hope that that will ever be a, a thing in the US, for instance, Jenny? Oh, gosh. I mean, <laughs> speaking of countries not aiming for net zero healthcare, I mean, I, I, I truthfully don't know exactly where the US healthcare system is with respect to its commitment to climate change, but I am fairly confident the conversation is not as far along as this. And I suspect it falls victim to what you were describing now, Joy, which is like the kind of small changes that make you feel like you are doing your duty, but you're just completely misaligned with the bigger priorities. Like you, like you tackle the low hanging fruit, like 
we no longer have plastic straws in our cafeteria. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But you're using like the wrong anesthetic gases or whatever the case may be. Well, I was in, I was in Waitrose the other day and um, I asked for a bag, you know, so I didn't have any bags. I felt really guilty because I bought a bag and they only had the big ones. So I had to pay 50p for a bag. And I asked why they didn't have the small ones. And she said, it's because we're trying to save the planet, you know? And I was like, okay, but look at all the packaging here. And uh, so making me feel very guilty for this um, when I guess the bigger picture is that even Waitrose, I'm sure, are very high carbon footprints. I don't know. (laughs) But yeah, I think that's what you're saying, Jenny, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, but you know, okay. Not to, not to carry on with this bag issue, but it's, it's the same with like cloth reusable bags, right? Like they're so in vogue because you're doing your duty for the planet. If you have a cloth reusable bag, but actually like there are so many, um, just vast quantities of these cloth reusable bags. And actually the climate cost of creating those bags and the cotton and the water requirements are, it's like net bad, right? Um, So we like to do these things that make ourselves feel better about ourselves. So I suppose we we need people and organizations to to help us with this, don't we? And, you know, what, which, which are the kind of things which make an impact. And I guess that's what you talked to, to Artie about, wasn't it enough joke? Yeah, so we did We did talk about that. What um, interventions can we do that might have the biggest impact? We also talked a little bit about um, how, you know, this is quite hard to do as an individual and to know what's best to do. And sometimes you need to create that kind of community of practice to go about it. So Artie had loads of really useful um, tips and advice and so why don't we have a listen? I'm a GP, I work in Sheffield. I'm also currently working um, as a clinical lead, net zero GP lead for the Humber Coast and Vale Um, integrated care service that's a new position prior to that I was um, working in medical education for about 15 years and um, I also have founded Greener Practice four years ago maybe that's where we can start so can you give us some examples of what are the big the biggies Mm. so the biggest thing is prescribing so it's the medicines that we prescribe actually that are the biggest part of our carbon footprint um, so from a sustainable sustainability point of view, we can think about where are the alternatives to prescribing? So, um, you know, there will be, you know, the evidence base says that if somebody's got borderline hypertension, for instance, but they don't have any other sort of cardiovascular risk factors, um, it might be just as useful for them to be encouraged to do some more physical activity Um Put, you know, ideally in a green space, that's going to be healthy and helpful for them in many different ways. It doesn't have any ongoing monitoring costs or side effects for either the health system or for them. So there are situations where, um, you know, there may be alternatives to prescribing that we should be thinking about. Um, but there's also, we all know that there's prescribing that we do 
that is potentially harmful. So um, we know that, for instance, opiates um, long term for pain are often not particularly helpful. So we should be thinking about those things or problematic polypharmacy. Um, so these are all things that you know other people are thinking about as well. But just making us realise that by doing this, not only are we improving the health of patients now, but we're also improving the sustainability of the health service and uh, reducing our carbon footprint. So, you know, it's just another way of realising what we can do. Mm. And of course, this is all really important. And for uh, the kind of widespread change, I guess, that we're looking for, I guess it requires um, some kind of integration that to be implemented into our systems and our work practices and that sort of thing to kind of make this as as frictionless, I suppose, for GPs to pick up and, and run with. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think we, you know, we need to be able to support GPs who are really busy at the moment and working extremely hard and struggling to, you know, just, just do the daily work, um, let alone think about... Um, sort of models of care or system improvement we need to make it um, as easy as possible for them to do this work and I think there's different ways that we can support that I think there is an element at system level where we need to create capacity for people to think about how we can Mm. do things differently Um, and you know with these new integrated care services they all have to have green plans um and that those green plans should also um encompass what happens in primary care there are there are sort of other ways that we can do that as well though so um for one of the hot spots in prescribing in primary care is uh, metered dose inhalers so those are the usual inhalers that we prescribe asthma patients um now the reason that they're, they're so disproportionately bad from a carbon footprint point of view is because the propellant in a metered dose inhaler has 1,000 to 3,000 times the carbon um, footprint of carbon dioxide. So it's got a very high global warming potential. Um, now, again, the vast majority of the way that we're going to reduce the carbon footprint to do with our asthma care is actually about just optimizing care because so the this sustainability angle is just allowing us to relook at our asthma care recognize actually the vast not the vast majority but at least two-thirds of our patients are under treated for asthma so they're mm. not regularly taking their steroid inhaler their preventer inhaler that's actually going to prevent them having their symptoms a lot of people are relying on their blue inhalers so that's generally in this country the ventolin mdi inhaler so just by improving that aspect of care that's how we're also going to reduce the carbon footprint um and in terms of making that easy you know one of the things that i'm doing at the moment is looking at how we can integrate into the system one and emis it systems that we use in general practice the kind of information that will actually make it possible for people to pick up when somebody might be over-reliant on their reliever, um, but also when they're doing their reviews, be able to have easy sort of discussions um, to help have that, you know, to think about, are they using their inhaler correctly? Do they know that the the steroid inhaler is the right inhaler to use and giving them the right information, you know, to do it. So some of it is also about 
just integrating with the work that we're already doing, the, the things that we do generally for our patients and making sure that sustainability is part of that conversation. Mm. Yeah. And um, I think I think inhalers comes up quite a lot when, um, you know, it's, it's the, the often the, the first thing that people think of when talking about this kind of uh, greener approach. So it's interesting, actually, that you said that. I would say that that's a change in conversation. So when I was talking about this stuff um, a couple of years ago, um, and even now, to some extent, the first thing people would talk to me would be about the recycling and the waste bins. Right. And that's not to say that those things aren't important, but they're actually a really small fraction of our carbon footprint. So the fact that people are seeing this in in a clinical uh, sense is, is actually quite a step forward. Um, but yes, yeah, so... Um, Actually, was it yesterday or two days ago, um, a free carbon calculator has been launched for GP practices. And I think that will get integrated with the Green Impact for Health toolkit that you you were talking about earlier. Um, So that's a toolkit that um, has been in existence now for several years. And I think there's over a thousand practices in the UK that are using it. It has over 100 actions that you can take, um, both in terms of clinical quality improvements, you know, talking about social prescribing for instance um or um you know green prescribing nature-based interventions um as well as all of those things like what kind of energies uh, providers are you using um insulating the practice and all of those kind of things so that carbon calculator is really really simple to use really really easy you just put a little bit of information in and it actually gives you a plan for your individual practice of where you might want to target just to switch gears slightly can I ask you about climate anxiety because I think this is definitely something that I have felt but I also feel that it's something patients um, may be seeing their GPs about is this something you've kind of come across or have thoughts on yeah so i I think climate anxiety is a real problem. I know I've experienced it and I continue to experience it sort of in a cyclical kind of way. The thing that helps me deal with it best is actually feeling like I'm doing something. And I think that's been evidenced. You know, if you can, if you can, if you feel like you're part of something that is hopefully trying to address the problem that's causing your anxiety then that's almost the best way of dealing with it um i think the other thing though about the anxiety is that it the climate messaging can feel really doom and gloom because to some extent you know the it if we don't do anything if we don't act it is pretty apocalyptic and it's fairly soon and and that's just the truth so when you when you finally engage with that it can be really really overwhelming and it can feel really disempowering that said um you know we do still have time we can make a difference and the really really energizing and positive thing i think from um the health point of view is that the things that we would do to act on the climate crisis are the same things that we would do for public health, even if there wasn't a climate crisis. So if there wasn't a climate crisis, we would be trying to reduce air pollution, we'd be trying to improve physical activity levels, we'd be trying to engage people with nature because we're learning so much more about how beneficial contact with nature is and being in biodiverse places you know the impact on our microbiomes the the phytoncides that trees give out there's so much stuff there that 
we know is helpful in terms of social prescribing you know that movement existed before people were really aware of the sustainability issue but you know we know that connected communities um where people feel that they belong um, is a really important part of health. And actually, we need to create those local connected communities as part of our solution to the climate crisis. So the really wonderful thing, very long answer, but the really wonderful thing from a health position is, is that it's a really positive, exciting vision, right? So we can finally create an environment that supports health for our population instead of having a very reactive system. Um, And those benefits come to us now. So it's not just about the future, but those health benefits, we get them now and we improve health for the future. Okay, well, I'm sold. (laughs) And I find that to be a very kind of energising message. And I mean, if listeners are feeling similarly, what are some of the resources or tools that you might point people to if they're interested in kind of pursuing this more? Okay, so um, I'm going to do a shout out to Greener Practice because when we started that, um, you know, it was very grassroots. It was very much in Sheffield. It is now all over the country. We've got local groups everywhere. Um, But one thing that we recognised is actually people don't know where to start. So they need one space where they can go. And then that space from a primary care perspective links them to all the other resources and all the other great organisations that are doing wonderful things in this space. So the Greener Practice website gives you the information that you need to know about how climate is a health issue. But it also gives you all the actions that you can take um, in really bite sized chunks. So you can just, you know, you can in five minutes read a little bit of whatever you want to know about, say, inhalers, and then it'll link you to a guide and other resources. Um, So it's got all of that. It's also got information for patients. So should you, as um, when you're having a conversation with patients, you want to sort of say to them, you might want to learn a little bit more about how beneficial nature is for your health. You can, you know, you can direct them to the Greener Practice website and they can learn for themselves about, you know, how this might be something that they should consider for their physical and mental health. So, um, but the other thing I would say is that's all really great for what you might want to do as an individual practitioner. But I would very, very much recommend connecting with other people who care. So whether that's that you're in your own practice level, but also sort of for you as an individual practitioner, if you if you want to work with this, see who else is in, you know, in a maybe a local greener practice group, because um, you talked about climate anxiety before. And we've all found in this movement that we we move with our emotions. So sometimes we feel more hopeful and sometimes we feel less hopeful. Um, if you're with a sort of supportive group of people, um, they sort of help you through all of that, you know, because everyone's been there. So, <laughs> so I yeah. think it, that's really, really important to sort of build a community of practice around you. If, if there isn't a greener practice um, group in your community, well, you know, set one up, get in touch with us and we'll help you set one up. Well, thanks, Astra. I feel very, very positive after that. It was, it was a very kind of energising conversation, as I think I said while I was speaking to mm. Artie, in that I think the thing that I took away was that maybe I had previously been seeing 
greener initiatives in primary care as a kind of add-on to the an, over, an already overwhelming workload. And I think what I got from speaking to Artie is a sense, actually, it is very much aligned with the things that we are doing anyway to be better practitioners and, you know, um, things like more prudent prescribing and uh, advocating for health and wellbeing interventions related to people's lifestyles and public health and kind of considering how we use our resources wisely. These are all things that are, you know, we're, all, we're already doing anyway. I do think there is this work that Artie speaks about to integrate more of that within our system. So it's not all on the shoulders of an individual practitioner to take that forward. Mm. But um, I, I, I did come away feeling a bit more kind of positive and less sort of burdened by it, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, I guess the thing that it maybe doesn't align with so much, me being the negative one as always, um, I guess is is the demand and workload and that, that we're under at the moment. And um maybe a similar thing to the um the anesthetic gas, you know, that the the things that we do that make things maybe quicker in the consultation aren't always the ones which are more environmentally friendly, you know, a prescription, for instance, for an opioid, I guess. But um so it, it it does still feel quite overwhelming to me when yeah. when you've got seventy calls on your on call list and you just need to get through them. Yeah, there's I mean there's no doubt that just general practice in general is is very overwhelming and to think about this alongside mm. all the other demands is still challenging for sure. Can I ask a question? Did you and RT talk at all about kind of individual level patient? behavior change because um I suppose I I I also think it's it's a nice way to think about this and kind of what Richard Smith said as well like a decarbonized society would be healthier so all the things that we should be doing anyway will also be better for the environment but it just strikes me that so much of the kind of health and well-being guidance that we would give people ultimately depends on empowering them to make healthier choices, like to engage in nature more or to partner with us on deprescribing, for example. We didn't talk about those kind of individual consultations with patients, and that is definitely something we can pick up for a future episode. But Artie did talk about uh, ways in which GPs can influence those conversations uh, should we do a bit of a shout out for the GP um, carbon calculator? It feels like that that's quite a useful thing. And I, I, I like that bit at the end, which is like, well, where, where do you go for, for more about this? And um, so gpcarbon.org, I think, is, is the one. Um, and it's really asking you about things like travel and your procurement things and a kind of practice level stuff rather than consultation things. But um, I've, I've heard of practices... There's one in Cornwall, wasn't there? They, they've bought a fleet of electric cars, was it? Um, and I know a practice near where I work, they've installing um, uh, solar panels on the, the roof. They, people doing really, really cool stuff to, to, to make a bigger impact than just putting some um, recycling bins in there. In the, in each room which is what we did <laughs> yeah I mean there is there is a lot of interesting stuff going on and we can link to some of those resources mm. in the show notes mm. for sure and maybe to to end on is is about 
how this links in with you know medicalization and um you know prescribing less and maybe doing less um which is again what rt was was referring to there wasn't there about you know why not speak to the social prescribing link worker rather than uh, start a new medication and i'll just say on that note that um Ramia Matthew, who is a GP that writes for us pretty frequently, oh, yeah. um, had a piece about this in the lead up to COP. Um, and her, we'll link to that piece as well. But essentially, she writes that climate action will require radical reform of how we practice medicine. And it sparked a pretty interesting conversation in the comments as well, which is just around how it will... Um, involve some interesting discussions and choices around overdiagnosis and how we practice and again some of those granular kind of patient level choices around the care mm. that they receive yeah it was a good one that wasn't it about one of the points i think was you know the lower we the lower the threshold for investigating a symptom the more you scan people yeah you know we're going to increase the carbon footprint of the nhs considerably and how does that square how do those two things square with one another yeah so um i guess if people are interested in hearing more about all that side of it there is there is this new podcast series for that uh, fiona godley is um hosting uh, called the recovery uh, which is available i guess wherever you get your podcast from but uh, and oh the bmj website has um has some links to it as well um, but that's a whole series about about this um this side of things uh, but obviously, make sure you, you listen to every episode of Deep Breath In first and rated them all and, <laughs> and send us your emails uh, to practice at bmj.com. Uh, we always like to, to hear from listeners. Um, and I think we'll probably return to, to this issue again, won't we? I feel like we've there's a lot more to say about greener practice and particularly maybe how healthcare will change in view of rising um, global temperatures. I think that's a, an issue that that we haven't covered at all, but but it's very much here here and now, isn't it? Yes, yeah, definitely. I mean, there are all sorts of kind of the health impacts that we haven't really touched on that GPs might be seeing, you know, consequences of air pollution, consequences of heat. Um, but yeah, there, there is so much more we can cover. Including how and whether Tom Nolan is a green GP. It's <laughs> fine. <laughs> See you next time, Jenny. Bye. See you next time. Okay. Jenny's got the <laughs> See you next time, Navjoy. Thanks very much. See you next time. And with, for our Christmas edition, I think, it's the next episode. So uh, yeah. do, do join us for that. And thank you to Richard and RT as well. Bye for now.